Since the 1960s, California has always been a place associated with alternative beliefs, countercultural movements and alternative lifestyles. The hippie movement, with its summer of love, fueled by the West Coast psychedelic music scene, will always be a highlight from the era. But the truth is, the state of California's links to alternative beliefs go back much further and manifested in much stranger ways than a bunch of long-haired students having a good time. Labour movements, civil rights activism and the gold rush era can all be associated with California's ties to alternative living, as can its long history with cult groups, who have thrived in the area for hundreds of years. With the boom of new thought, Eastern spirituality and alternative religions, countless groups emerged to furnish the world with their peculiar beliefs and practices. One group, known as the Divine Order of the Royal Arms of the Great Eleven, however, trumps many with its utterly nonsensical story of animal sacrifice, ritual worship, mysterious disappearances and elusive publications. This is Dark Histories, where the facts are worse than fiction. Hello and welcome to Dark Histories. Wait for it. Episode 1, Season 8. Season 8 of Dark Histories. Thank you so much to uh, for everyone for listening to the show and supporting all this time uh, to make it so, so that I can even be doing a Season 8, which is absolutely bonkers. It's really good to be back on the microphone. I hope everyone had a great uh, you know, holiday season, Christmas and New Year. I managed, if you didn't listen to the uh, Christmas campfire episodes... I managed to catch uh, COVID on, or, well, come down with COVID on Christmas Eve. So my Christmas was pretty much uh, null and void. Um, and it is also the reason why this episode is a little later than I was kind of expecting to start. I was hoping to sort of come out on the 7th of January as the first episode. But uh, yeah, COVID kind of put a foot in that one, uh, as it tends to do. I'm still actually uh, still sort of suffering a little bit from it. It's been a I've had, it's funny, I've had COVID a few times now and, and this was certainly the worst uh, and, the, and the most pr- prolonged. But uh, anyway, enough of that whining. Let's get on with this episode or, you know, let's get on with the, the intro. If you've never listened to Dark Histories before, um, then uh, welcome. Uh, say uh, episode one, season eight, I guess is a good place as any to start. Uh, at the start of every season, I, I kind of like to give a little bit of a spiel because I, I try not to bang on about like supporting and all the rest of it um, like in the normal episodes, but, you know, have a little bit of a push at the start of the season. So, yeah, if you would like to support Dark Histories, um, I do have a Patreon. Uh, there's some bonus material on there and things like that. Yeah, it, obviously, it, it, it's a, a huge help. If you don't want to support financially, there are plenty of other ways to support, um, you know, just sharing it with your friends. I notoriously am terrible at sharing dark histories. I don't really get involved on social media and things. I'm, I'm kind of introverted in that respect. I, 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 not, I, I find social media difficult. Um, so, you know, sharing the show with your friends is, is a great help um, and, and, and things like that. Just spreading the word of dark histories. Anyway, uh, that's kind of my big push <laughs> that's kind of it right yeah uh, if you want to go uh, find out any ways that you can support anyway uh, probably best go to darkhistories.com you'll find all the ways to support there so anyway as enough of that let's move on this episode i think is going to be a bit of a long one we're going to kick off the season with a bit of a monster um so we should probably just move straight on with it as quickly as possible uh it's a funny episode when i first found out about it i actually thought the story was fiction uh, because it was just so bizarre. 
um, it, it took me a little while to actually start trusting the sources that I was reading. So anyway, let's jump into it. This is May Blackburn and the Divine Order of the Royal Arms of the Great Eleven. At the turn of the 20th century, religion in America was in a very fractured place. Since the very first Puritans settled on the continent, new religions had begun springing up around them as disagreements in doctrine led to schisms and entirely new ideas forged a way for new philosophies to emerge, moving further and further away from the traditional religious establishment. Reformists by nature, early American settlers carried their non-conformist ideas into their new communities, many of whom were already seeking something new, creating a perfect environment for the propagation of potentially radical ideas. Throughout this period, a host of renegade preachers inspired entire communities to do things like abstain from washing, wear animal skins for clothing that they never changed, and cut out the intake of material food. In Ohio, Joseph Dilks, who had previously declared himself as a celestial being, convinced a community that he was the Messiah returned and had the members of his church roll about naked on the floor. Eventually, Dilks was hounded out of town after being arrested, an affront that he very much disagreed with on the grounds that it was not a crime to be God. One of the more infamous of these early religious groups was the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, more popularly known as the Mormons. Founded by Joseph Smith in 1830 after he had received a vision from an angel, they were naturally relatively controversial from the outset and lived a semi-nomadic lifestyle before settling far away from any seat of traditional power in order to grow and expand as an established religion. Smith had spent a fair bit of time in the company of another man who had claimed to have visions named Robert Matthews, who had stirred up a healthy following in New York, where he was walking around, claiming to be a descendant of the Apostle Matthias, and later, the incarnation of God himself. Not allowing his failed prophetic visions to hinder his confidence, he set up a religious estate known as Mount Zion, and carried out a series of fairly unwholesome relationships with the women of the community, until he was eventually arrested for blasphemy, theft, assault, insanity and murder, Fortunately, Joseph Smith had managed to disassociate himself from Matthews, who he now declared as the devil, hoping to do so before his reputation could leak out onto his own. This left Smith clear to publish his own core doctrinal book, The Book of Mormon, when he was just 24 years old. Smith was violently murdered 14 years later, viewed at the time as both a fanatic by outsiders and as a prophet by the believers. Neither viewpoint was particularly strange at the time, with revivalist preachers touring the countryside, giving emotionally charged sermons in order to stir up religious fervour and inspire a host of social reforms that they believed needed to be adhered to in order to herald the second coming of Christ. Whilst Joseph Smith was busy steering his flock through Illinois, where they set themselves up for the foreseeable future, William Miller was busy with his own mission across New England, where he had convinced thousands that the second coming of Christ was just around the corner and, based on his calculations, was due to occur in 1844. By the dawn of that fateful year, close to a million Americans were convinced that the end was very much nigh, which led to an event known as the Great Disappointment, when the designated day, the 22nd of October 1844, concluded and Christ was nowhere to be seen. By the mid-19th century, a new trend had gotten well underway, as scores of messianic figures taking a leaf from Robert Matthews' playbook 
struck out with their own splinter groups and set up small communes across the country. Most had predictably ridiculous names like the Garden of Eden or the Great Zion, and many encapsulated the widespread desire to engage with radical politics, philosophies and societies, practising nudism, fruitarianism and polygamy, all in the name of creating a new heaven on earth. Most of these failed quietly, whilst a few met dramatic ends, especially when their beliefs centred around a world that, inconveniently, would not end when it was supposed to. Of the more successful beliefs to emerge in the 19th century, the Christian Science Church followed on from the emergence of Mormonism and Millerism and managed to establish itself as a popular movement. Mary Baker Eddy founded the Church of Christ Scientist in 1879 and pushed a doctrine that all life was a waking dream, and so it followed. All illness was therefore unreal, with all one having to do to become healed simply being to awake from the dream and achieve unity with God. The large number of members whose children died from diphtheria in the early days of this movement were simply told that they were not following the teachings as dogmatically as possible. The Christian science movement was closely followed, oftentimes by the same people, by the theosophists throughout the latter half of the night. Another offshoot of traditional religion that also made a good fist of establishing their ideas throughout the latter half of the 19th century. Closely related to the teachings of Russian medium Helena Blavatsky and the esoteric ideas of occultism, cosmology and mysticism, often blended with Eastern religions and philosophies, including Hinduism and Buddhism, Blavatsky taught that theosophy was based upon an ancient, long-lost religion that would once again reign supreme across the world, unifying science and religion and cultivating supernatural powers within its members. As the 20th century approached, with many of the earlier communes having fallen away into failure and obscurity, a new, more business-like approach to religion reared its head across America. Messiahs across the country were waking up to the idea that they could profit rather handsomely if only they could gather a wealthy enough following. Unfortunately for them, the wealthy were frequently among those keenest to invest in their future. Faith healer, flat earther and claimed reincarnation of the prophet Elijah, Alexander Dowie came to America from Australia in 1893 and set up Zion City north of Chicago, where members worked in several of the businesses set up by Dowie in a strange blending of theocracy, economics and politics. Naturally, all members of Zion City were instructed to deposit all of their money into the city's bank, which in fact wasn't a bank at all, but rather a private entity owned and controlled by Dowie. Like most things in Zion, it was run fairly well into the ground, under the stewardship of an increasingly senile Dowie, who was eventually kicked out of his own city a year before his death in 1906, when it was discovered that he had spent a large amount of the Zion's profits on a healthy stash of secret pornography. Following the First World War, many young men and women felt a collective disillusionment. There was a prevailing sense that traditional values and the lifestyles and belief systems of their grandparents had failed. This was coupled with a curiosity to explore new fields of thought. The 1920s became a fertile ground for a renaissance in spiritualism and the occult. In America, many of these people sought a new life in California, where, by the end of the 1920s, it was estimated that over 400 cult groups had sprung up throughout the decade each one with a charismatic leader offering new answers to age-old questions. 
The state positively bubbled with exciting new ideas, as vegetarians, spiritualist mediums, nudists, Satanists and Christian offshoots, often with doomsday prophecies to tell, were all common talking points for the Californian public. The gold rush had already made California the land of dreams for many, and the new rise of Hollywood further propagated the idea that if you wanted to make money, you had to move to California, the land of fame and fortune. It was also far away from the footholds of the established religions on the East Coast, a hotbed for sick people seeking a miracle sunshine cure, as well as bankrupt people looking to start a new chapter in their lives. It was, in short, a hotbed for disenfranchised people, all looking for new answers in an area that was undergoing explosive growth and unprecedented wealth creation, offering endless hope for those that made the journey to the West, just as it always had. Though many of the new ideas and religious sects that emerged in California throughout the 1920s did not originate on the West Coast, it was often there that they found their feet once their leaders took up residence in the state. May and Ruth Blackburn, originally from the Midwest, moved to California in 1918, enticed by the glamour of Hollywood and the promise of a life in movies. Though their careers eventually took them in a very different direction, as instead of movie stars and scriptwriters, they became queens of a new religion, which they had dubbed the Divine Order of the Royal Arms of the Great Eleven. May Otis was born on August 2, 1881, in the small Iowan city of Storm Lake. Her earliest years were far from stable after her father, William Roswell Otis, died while she was still in infancy, leading to her mother, Matilda, remarrying in 1885 and shifting the whole family 250 miles northwest to Huron in South Dakota. Matilda's new husband, Edgar Palmer Holt, was a farmhand and his work carried the family further west over the following years until they reached Minnesota where they seemed to settle, at least until May turned 16 when she married a Canadian man named Augustus John Wheeland. Following her marriage, May moved back to South Dakota, but the marriage quickly struggled. May had fallen pregnant with the couple's first child quickly after marriage. However, Augustus had something of a gambling problem that often flared into anger issues, especially when May withheld money from him. The situation was dire enough to force May into leaving her new husband while she was still pregnant, and when she gave birth to her daughter, Ruth, on the 25th of July, 1899, it was already far away from Augustus, in the town of Elk Point in South Dakota. Shortly after Ruth's birth, May received a letter from a doctor in California informing her that her estranged husband had actually been shot and killed following a dispute over a mine. For May, his death was of little consequence, other than officially making her now a widow, as she continued on with her life with her new daughter, moving to Minneapolis, where, struggling to raise the child alone, she put Ruth into the care of her mother and stepfather. Free of a violent husband and her newborn child, May quickly met a new man, Rudolf Schultz, in Minneapolis, and the two married a year later after a whirlwind romance. Perhaps evident from the circles that May had already begun to run in, the witness to her marriage to Rudolf was a woman named Lucy Lamb, a local spiritualist medium who gave public readings in her home on 6th Street in Minneapolis. May had been upfront about her recent widow status when she met Rudolf. However, she had been somewhat less honest about her daughter, Ruth, who she instead said was her younger sister. May's parents had recently moved, along with Ruth, to Washington State, and after her marriage, May pushed for a move that, four years later, in 1905, saw her and Rudolph settling down in Portland, Oregon, 
where Rudolph secured a job as a waiter in a hotel. The move allowed May to visit her family, though she continued the facade that Ruth was merely her younger sister rather than her daughter, even to Ruth herself, so that the young girl grew up believing that her mother was her sister and that her grandparents her parents. Nevertheless, May was able to keep up a good relationship with her family, including Ruth, and her marriage continued reasonably well, despite May demanding Rudolph hand over 80% of his wages for her own personal expenditure. Whether it was greed or a wariness to trust the men in her life after having a previous husband with gambling problems is unknown, but Rudolph seemed fine with the arrangement. A fairly large hiccup, however, came a year later, in 1906, when May told Rudolph that she had received evidence that her previous husband, apparently shot dead in California, was in fact still alive, and therefore their marriage was null and void. Rudolph was not particularly fazed by the news and begged May to continue their marriage regardless, but May refused and instead sought a summons for her not-dead husband, claiming that he had faked his death in order to avoid his responsibilities as a husband and father. Unfortunately, Augustus Whelan never did resurface, and eventually, two years later, May was back in front of the judges seeking a divorce. As evidence, she insisted that earlier that year, her mother had received a letter from a man named John Worthy who had written to her inquiring after the identity of her daughter. When May's mother replied, informing him that her daughter was May, he wrote back saying that he had buried Augustus Wheeland in Alaska almost a decade after his supposed death in California. The real surprise came when the writer informed May's mother that in his long absence, Augustus had managed to become a relatively rich man and had bequeathed $100,000 to May, but only as she had never remarried. May, of course, sought to track down this mysterious letter writer, and following the postmark, she travelled to Tacoma, where she met, not with John Worthy, but with her supposed twice-dead husband, who was in fact alive and well. Now, she had returned to Portland to gain a divorce from her husband, insisting to the judge that she wanted no part in his fortune. In 1909, May's divorce was officially granted. In truth, the reason for May so desperately wanting a clean break from her not-so-dead first husband was due to the fact that she had recently met a new man, a lawyer and lumber tycoon from Portland named Fremont Everett, a well-to-do businessman who was, among other interests, the part owner of the Everett Lumber Company and a member of Portland High Society. The big problem with this relationship, however, was Everett's wife and children. May and Everett continued an illicit affair for several years, during which time May secured a bitter annulment from Schultz, who had demanded 50% of her property in the separation. And then, soon after, she met a young singer from Vancouver, Washington, named George Edward Blum, with whom she married in the spring of 1915. Blum was a good catch for May. He had recently been the beneficiary of a $3,000 settlement after he had suffered a construction accident whilst at work, and May had pretty big plans for the money. She and Ruth moved in with Bloom, though the situation was relatively short-lived as two years later, Bloom wound up in jail and May had left him, now separated from her third husband. May's wheeling and dealing in companions over the years had seen her profit reasonably well, however, especially her affair with Fremont Everett, and now she used the money to build a house in Portland and buy herself from Ruth a car. She also founded the Starlight Film Company, and looked at kick-starting her daughter's career as an actor. Young and attractive, 
The pair saw Ruth's casting in her first film as the first big step in her natural progression to a national star. In the summer of 1917, Ruth was cast in the main role in the first film ever to be made in Portland, a hokey tale of a downtrodden young woman from a mining community who moves to the big city after her father's death to find romance in high society. Imaginatively titled The Diamond in the Rough, the film was shot by the American Lithiograph Company and directed by Louis Moomore, but entirely funded by May's Starlight Film Company, which rather explains how Ruth might have landed that role. Despite this recipe for disaster, the film did actually reach a certain degree of local success, with Ruth especially heralded by the local press as a pretty lass of 17 years who displays all of the ability and natural aptitude of a born screen star. Sadly, Hollywood was busy doing its own thing and willfully ignorant of anything made outside of Southern California, and it roundly ignored Ruth's great debut. May did her best, forging Ruth's credentials and linking her with Hollywood on her CV in the hopes that the invented association might lend her daughter some added credibility, but the diamond in the rough never did manage any wider success and Ruth's star quickly faded. Realising that life for a movie star was difficult outside of Hollywood, May sold her Portland properties to Freeman Everett for $25,000 and she and Ruth moved to Los Angeles. May had folded the Starlight Film Company at the same time as their big move and instead sought work as a director upon their arrival in Hollywood. But it was a fruitless job search and after several months of rejections, May took instead to closing herself away and reading her Bible. Ruth hadn't been idle upon their arrival in Los Angeles either. She had sought work in the movies immediately and landed a few jobs as an extra, but it was never enough to sustain the pair, and none of the jobs acted as the foot in the door that she desperately needed. So instead, she took to working as a taxi dancer, dancing with men for cash in the local dance halls, heavily supplemented with the job as an oriental dancer, where she was scantily dressed in stereotypical eastern garb and channeled the spirit of Cleopatra for her paying public. It was around this time that Ruth began her own marriage career, and in 1919, she married Edgar Jack Rickenbaugh, a 22-year-old rail clerk from Pennsylvania. The couple lived together, with May on South Grand Avenue. However, within two years, they had separated after Rickenbaugh proved to have a wicked, jealous streak that was wholly incompatible with Ruth's career as an exotic dancer. By this point, May and Ruth were so hard up for cash that Ruth could not afford to pay for a divorce, and so instead, the couple simply separated. A situation that caused almost immediate trouble after Ruth met Arthur Carl Osborne in a dance hall a year later, who she sought to marry, using the pseudonym Teddy Gates in order to conceal the relationship from her estranged husband, who was still hanging around in the background, violent and jealous as ever. It's safe to assume that this period of May and Ruth's lives was probably not feeling like much of a highlight, but May had fresh plans. After failing in the movies, she had given herself to feverishly reading her Bible, and now she was beginning to see a new path ahead. Ruth's new fiancé, Arthur Osborne, was probably one of the first people in California to hear about May's exciting new career path as an author. One night, Ruth told him all about how, alongside her mother, the pair had been writing a book which she soon planned to publish that aimed to focus on some of the biggest questions in life. She claimed that they would clarify within its pages the origins of the universe, the meaning of God, 
and perhaps most importantly, how to get rich from all the hidden treasure that lay in all the mines across the world. Silver, gold and gemstones could all be discovered if one just knew how to interpret the Bible properly, which is exactly what she and May were planning to explain when they published this grand work. If all of this sounded pretty out there, it was nothing to what Ruth dropped next. That the book was not so much being written by her and her mother, rather May had been busy interpreting the words of an angel that had been visiting her nightly in order to dictate this book to her. Ruth's immediate problem, and the reason that she was enlightening Osborne with all of this information, was that she could not give up work in order to completely give her efforts to the publication of this groundbreaking book because she still needed money in order to secure her divorce from Rickenball. Which, of course, is where Osborne came in. If he could lend her enough money to pay for this divorce, she could quit working as a dancer. A positive for Osborne already, and instead she could focus on finishing up this book that would bring them stupendous wealth. Osborne wasn't convinced at first. In fact, perhaps wisely, he began distancing himself from Ruth instead. But eventually, his desire for companionship won out, and he spoke to his employer and secured a small loan, which he promptly handed over to Ruth. It all seemed to go to plan. Ruth quit dancing, snaffled the cash and used it to divorce Rickenball. But then Ruth was back demanding more money. Apparently, the angel that had been visiting May at night was now demanding that she and Ruth start a new religious order with which they could utilise to spread their divine revelations. Starting a religious order was a costly affair, however, and now Ruth was asking Osborne for more money. It was either that he would lend it to her or she would be forced to go back to dancing. Osborne capitulated, borrowing around $150 from his employer and handed it all over to Ruth. Unfortunately for Osborne, the book was taking longer to publish than he had bargained for and soon his employer was on the case for the money back. When he finally admitted it was impossible, his father visited May and demanded she pay the money back immediately. May saw him off and wrote to Osborne's mother telling her that if the family kept pestering her, she would kill her son. This was a pretty extreme reaction, but it seemed to do the trick, though it was no help to Osborne who found himself unable to pay back the cash and so his employer promptly fired him. Now destitute and without a job, Osborne enlisted in the army, whilst May and Ruth decided it best to skip town under the cover of darkness, hightailing it back to Portland where they had friends who they thought may be more receptive to the words of their divine informer. Back in Portland, May and Ruth began tapping into their old network of family and friends in order to begin a recruitment drive for their bold new religion. May began spreading the word that since a child she had been followed around by a disembodied voice, which in later life had evolved into a great and powerful angel who introduced himself to the woman as Gabriel and announced that the end of the world was nigh, with May and Ruth being the two witnesses described in the book of Revelation. Gabriel had unveiled himself in order to dictate the book that May and Ruth would diligently work on publishing, which would be named The Seventh Trumpet of Gabriel. Essentially, Gabriel was there to explain the answers to all things, except explanations were apparently not his strong point. Either that or May and Ruth had trouble putting it down on paper in any sort of order that made any real sense. The knowledge that May began expressing was nothing short of a convoluted ball of nonsensical claptrap that somehow managed to pull in elements of the occult, magical rituals, numerology, paganism, King Arthur, the Four Horsemen, New Age philosophy and an incredible fancy naming system for any members who care to join the order. 
The universe breathed in and out via a fourth dimension, constantly recycling versions of reality as it did so. Or something along those lines. May demonstrated this example with such logic as, There is no age, for no matter how old you think you are, you can never be any older than nine, for when you reach ten, you circle back to one again, as the numbers are eternally travelling in a circle. Sadly, for everyone, when Adam and Eve ate the apple from the tree of life, they took on not only original sin, but also the burden of having destroyed the tree's original function as some kind of transmogrifying lung. Of course, May and Ruth had been given the answers to fix this issue, and when they did so, everyone was going to live forever. Along the way, followers of the order were also promised that they would be given the lost measurements of Solomon, leading them to great riches in gold, silver and rich mineral deposits. This post-mortal paradise would be ruled over by May, Ruth and nine other women, who were named as the queens of the divine order of the royal arms of the Great Eleven, who would live in marble palaces in the Hollywood Hills and be gifted eleven kings each from Gabriel himself. It wasn't all take-take-take, however. Those who chose to join the order were forced to give up apples due to their association with Adam and Eve, along with T-bone steaks due to their tea resembling a cross, and walnuts because May believed they erected barriers and sowed disharmony. As bizarre as this sounds, it only gets worse once you learn that May made the links between walnuts and evil due to some inane wordplay that she often enjoyed deploying in her philosophies, often linking words that sounded similar but had absolutely no ties, meanings or even sense whatsoever. Walnuts were forbidden due to their name including the word wall. This quote-unquote wordplay continued over to the names she gave the followers. For example, Martha Rhodes was given the title The New Road to Freedom, whilst Margaret Sands was dubbed The Sandbar Between Water and the Land. May named herself much more simply, of course. She was referred to as the North Star, the Heel of God, Her Heavenly Highness Queen May, or simply Mother. If all of this is sounding insanely confusing, that's because it absolutely was. In truth, the followers of May's new religious order cared far less about trying to make sense of the garbage that spewed from the Queen's mouth as proclamations of divine prophecy and far more about the riches that they would obtain from just going along with it and the eternal life that they would soon be granted. Amazingly, the followers did come, and they came relatively quickly too. The followers weren't just simpletons either. They came from a wide range of social and economic backgrounds, with ages from 18 to 60, and from business owners to working-class labourers. Martha and William Rhodes were two of the followers May and Ruth recruited from Portland. Originally from Iowa, the family, with their young daughter Willa, had moved to Oregon after a short stint in California and settled down as the owners of a successful sawmill. William was particularly well-known locally and had once chosen to run on the Republican ticket, losing out on a seat in government by only 13 votes. Later, he used some of his wealth to build a small church for the local community. Meanwhile, William's wife Martha was busying herself homeschooling Willa and practising Christian science, a 19th century splinter from the Protestant church that mixed traditional biblical philosophy with spiritual healing and metaphysics. Despite the Rhodes' popularity in the area, this Christian science link had led to some pretty unsavoury rumours floating around town that the family were practising bizarre ceremonies in their home at night, 
with some going so far as to say that they had buried their deceased nine-year-old son in the front yard and were working to resurrect him via some form of ritualistic magic. The rumours weren't entirely unfounded either. Martha had herself been spouting off in town about some of her more wild Christian science beliefs, including resurrection and the belief that she was able to heal people and animals using only her thought waves. If this wasn't feed enough for the strange rumours, it was her claims that she had already raised the dead on five occasions before, including once on herself. Martha and May met at a religious meeting in 1922, and Martha introduced May to her husband a year later. May was a big fan of Martha's beliefs immediately, and particularly took a shine to their daughter, Willa, who she drafted instantly into a leadership role for her order, naming her the Tree of Life and granting her the promise of becoming one of the eleven queens alongside herself and Ruth. Within a few years of being back in Portland, May had racked up around a hundred followers, just like the Williamses, and had fleeced enough money from them to move the entire order back to Los Angeles in 1925, where May was sure they would grow further. She set up the order officially and created a charter, declaring the group founded as a direct order from God, as told to her via Gabriel. May, of course, was in charge under God's explicit command. One of the order's first commands was apparently to set up a printing press, which would publish literature for the order, as well as a treasury that would forward all proceeds to May after the monthly stipend of $5,000 was secured and banked for the propagation of the order. Whilst May and Ruth were busy setting up this order in California, Martha Rhodes hung back in Oregon and continued to spread the good word throughout her network. Before long, she had snared a veteran from the First World War named Gail Condy Banks. Banks had worked as a travelling salesman following the war, before going into military training, where he worked in an army academy teaching mathematics and Latin. Martha insisted to Banks that May had called Banks specifically to a meeting with her, as ordered by an angel, which proved to be a fairly compelling draw for Banks, who soon enlisted as May and Ruth's personal secretary, where he was renamed as the Four Winds of the Whirlwind of God. Being educated, Banks's main role as a secretary was actually to interpret May's ridiculous scribble into something resembling an intelligible document. Banks also had links to the Church of Christ, Scientist, a Boston-based sect of Christian science where he'd held membership for over 25 years. May sent Banks to Boston, hoping that he could convince the leadership that May and Ruth's writings should be made into official church literature, though he was rejected outright. The meeting went so badly, in fact, that Banks was also removed from the church membership. Banks made his way back to Oregon with his tail between his legs to collect his family before moving to California to join the order full-time, clearly unfazed by such a total rejection in Boston. Meanwhile, back in California, May had initiated a relationship with her stepbrother. A year younger than Ruth, Ward Blackburn fancied himself something of a mystic and was surrounded with unwholesome rumours about his affairs with children. By any margin, this was a strange match for the ultimate queen of the divine order, but love is love and the pair were married in January of 1924 and May became May Otis Blackburn. Four months later, Ruth also married a young 17-year-old Italian-American whose father had fled to California years earlier after becoming involved in a triple homicide. Despite being from a heavily Catholic family, Samuel, or Sammy, signed up to his new wife's order, which apparently didn't bother his family particularly. Perhaps they were just happy that he had found such a beautiful young wife. Whilst all this was going on, 
May decided that the small property the order had been renting on Acacia Avenue was far too small, and so she began seeking a new headquarters more fitting for the membership of her new religion. She found a large three-storey house on South Manhattan that she was able to rent from a prominent property magnate which she had converted into a dormitory for the members of the order who had moved to Los Angeles already. At the same time, Walter and Ward Blackburn established a printing house for the order, which they named the Walter J. Blackburn Publishing Company. It was fully equipped with a printing press, primed and ready to pump out copies of May's divine publications. Ruth's new husband was instructed to work at the press, and before long, copies of the seventh trumpet of Gabriel were wheeling off the rollers, ready to be disseminated to the public at large. Far from the large tome that would explain everything that she had promised, however, the work was instead a series of thin pamphlets. The main course, she insisted, was still forthcoming. It was, as it had always been, very nearly complete. The members would just have to wait a little longer. In order to keep these followers interested, May instead developed a series of cheap stage tricks to prove her divine provenance, along with threatening those that may leave with punishment from God for doubting his orders. Perhaps unsurprisingly, that summer saw the beginning of difficulties in Ruth and Sammy's marriage. Just two months after they had repeated their vows, Sammy had begun to have second thoughts about the order and its place in their new life together. Very soon after joining, he had started to refuse to participate in group rituals, and at one point he'd actually attempted to convince Ruth to quit the order and run away with him. Ruth, a fully anointed queen, now named the Royal Warder of the Purple Robes, was obviously not at all willing, signalling to Sammy that she was perhaps a little more into this group than he had first allowed himself to realise. Quickly, the relationship broke down into one of arguments and unfortunately, violence on behalf of Sammy. This was a critical error on Sammy's behalf and he was instantly kicked out of the headquarters by May and barred from ever returning. The events that followed took a particularly dark turn when May visited a newer member of the order named Eleanor Sandrosky a druggist who had been given the name of the Rainbow. May requested that Sandrosky visit her at the headquarters at her earliest convenience. Not wanting to hold up the Grand Queen of the Order, she immediately downed tools and attended the meeting, where May related to her that the angel Gabriel had requested May kill Sammy Rizzio and that the druggist must supply the poison. Sensing Sandrosky's shock and surprise, May told her not to worry as she would happily resurrect him at a later date after the publication of her promised book. May requested that Sandrosky furnish her with a toxin which could not be detected in the body of a drowned man. And when Sandrosky replied that she wasn't entirely sure if such a thing existed, May only suggested that she go away and do a little research to try and find something suitable. Thankfully for Sandrosky, May called upon her a month later and clarified that she did not actually intend to kill Sammy in any real physical sense, only symbolically in a ceremonial ritual that would rid him of any fallacious beliefs that he currently held, presumably those of his Catholic upbringing. The fact that May still insisted on Sandrosky furnishing her with a real poison for the ritual, as naturally God did not deal with substitutes, did little to allay her fears, however. Sandrosky returned to her husband and the two discussed the request, agreeing that May's explanation of a symbolic murder sounded entirely unreasonable. Sandrosky's problems only grew when she returned to May once more to explain that she had discussed this plan with her husband and the two had voiced their doubts. May flew into a fit of rage and insisted that Eleanor leave her husband immediately and that God had already told her that he was the wrong partner for her anyway. 
She then called a male member into the room and commanded him to marry Eleanor instead, much to his surprise. Apparently, it didn't matter that the man was already married, a fact that May shrugged off, telling me only that he would marry again as commanded by the angels. This was all enough for Eleanor, who fled the headquarters and concocted a vial of water mixed with food colouring, which she handed over to May in place of any poison, and then promptly left the order, saying goodbye to the members, along with the $750 that she and her husband had recently handed over to the treasury. The same night, May and Ruth drove Sammy out to a beach in Santa Monica, where May poured the harmless bottle of coloured water over Sammy's head, commanded him to spin around on the spot ten times while shouting, I am a dead priest, in order to clear any spiritual blockage and have him commit to the order in future. The killing was, apparently symbolic after all, at least he had turned out to be so after Sandrosky had left the order. This bizarre saga of Sammy Rizzio would be covered up for years before it would see the light of day, so no one can really be sure if May ever intended to truly murder Sammy or not, nor what the outcome may have been if Eleanor had supplied her with a vial of real poison. Following the ritual, Sammy Rizzio's family were beginning to have some concerns over the well-being of Sammy. His eldest sister, who had continued to write to her brother regularly, had a growing suspicion when he suddenly stopped writing. Visiting the printing house where he should have been working several weeks after the ritual, her concerns only grew when she found the building empty and locked up, with no Sammy in sight. She took it upon herself to visit Ruth and May and asked the pair straight up where her brother was, but when she arrived at the order's headquarters, she was turned away by May, who told her that Sammy had up and left on his own accord several weeks earlier. Apparently, according to May, he had become overwhelmed with guilt for abusing Ruth and packed his suitcase, taken $20 and left behind a letter saying that he was going into a self-imposed exile in order to meditate on his wrongdoings. Either the ritual on the beach had worked on a profound level or something was wrong with this picture of Sammy and his sister knew just as much. When she returned home, she told the story to the rest of the family and found that everyone was just as suspicious as herself. Sammy's younger brother, Frank, visited the headquarters next and demanded to see Sammy's letter. However, when he arrived, rather than accusing the order of covering up for some kind of disappearance, he instead decided on a different route. Talking himself up to May, he applied for a position within the order as May's personal chauffeur, a move that would allow him to plenty of time to snoop around behind the scenes, where he hoped to find out the truth about his missing brother. It was a subterfuge that didn't take long to wield results when he found his brother's suitcase. Asking May about it, she dodged his questions, saying that perhaps Sammy was coming home, an answer which didn't really make any sense, given the presence of his suitcase. Later, when his family continued to ask questions, members began telling them that Sammy had become a high priest and as such was invisible to less spiritual eyes. All the while... The strange saga of Sammy Rizzio was continuing. May was keeping herself busy, marketing the order. She had taken out several full-page adverts in prominent Los Angeles newspapers, proclaiming to the world that on the 6th of February 1925, an opening of a new spiritual order would occur. May stopped short of signalling the end of the world, instead saying that the world was going to be reborn. It was a delicate sidestepping of an already popular philosophy that had been growing in Los Angeles, headed up by a woman named Margaret Rowan who fronted the Reformed Seventh-day Adventist Mission, a group who prophesied the end of the world. May was being clever, piggybacking off of Rowan's already successful sect, 
Instead of offering people doom and gloom that she was sure would not come, however, May was offering the possibility of eternal life and great riches in this new world, all for a small donation in order to expedite the publishing of May's divine dictation. It was a smart move on May's part, as she planned to capitalise heavily on Rowan's disenfranchised followers when the end of the world would fail to materialise. It wasn't just the public that paid attention to May's adverts, though. The press were inspired to take note, with the LA Times itself sending a pair of journalists to the headquarters in order to meet May and talk to her about her new religion. This journalistic piece would eventually not be published for a further six months, until February 7th, 1925, the day after Rowan had promised the end of the world and when the order had fallen into the sights of prosecutors, who had opened an inquiry into May's publications. But in the summer of 1925, all of that was still several months away and May and Ruth's order was doing a fine business. Having taken on more and more followers, all of whom were donating money to the order to push along the publication of its seminal tome, May had been hoovering up real estate to house everyone. One of the key components in this venture was the onboarding of local oil magnate Clifford Dabney, along with the majority of his family. May had recently moved into the Dabney's neighbourhood and took no time at all to introduce herself. Clifford Dabney took interest in May's forthcoming book, which was, as yet, still unpublished, of course, and May happily explained to him how it was going to embellish great wealth on its supporters. A keen investor, Clifford saw the book as a worthy punt and wasted no time in donating funds to the tune of $5,000 in the hopes that the book may pay off and extol him with all the riches that he could possibly imagine. For this hefty donation, Clifford was given the opportunity to attain the name The Hereafter and Now, whilst his wife, Alice, was renamed the Holy Keystone, but only after they had donated a further $500 for this pleasure. For most, this was an obscene amount of money to throw at anyone, but Clifford Dabney had made his great wealth speculating in the oil industry. For him, this was all in a day's work. In November of 1924, William and Martha Rhodes arrived in Los Angeles with their daughter, Willa, finally ready to hook up with May and Ruth and dedicate themselves to the order. It had taken them so long to arrive due to William's initial reservations, but eventually he had succumbed to his wife's insistence and the family had up sticks in order to start their new life in California. With Willow in tow, they were moved into the South Manhattan headquarters so that Willow could officially take her place as one of the queens of the order alongside May and Ruth. As a moving in gift, Willow was given seven puppies named Do, Re, Mi, Fa, So, La and T after the tones of Gabriel's trumpet. The roads arrived at a good time for the order. Financially, things were going well, and Jenny Ward, May's own mother, had just recently rejoined the household after being chained to her bed for 75 days on the angel's orders. These good times were not to last forever, however, and though Willow enjoyed two months being May's most favourite queen, things quickly turned awry when she fell sick on Christmas Day of 1924, after she had been suffering from a festering tooth ulcer. May had insisted that she snubbed traditional medicine, and Willa's mother happily followed along, keen to showcase the powers of Christian science. After five days, Willa's situation became increasingly bleak, leaving Martha to state that she had already accepted her daughter's inevitable demise as part of a grand plan that would see her daughter die and then miraculously resurrect. Fortunately, this didn't actually happen, and Willa regained some strength, enough at least to get out of bed for New Year's Eve, but the improvement was short-lived, and the following day she was forced back to bed, where she died that afternoon. 
Martha attempted several times to resurrect her daughter, but when these obviously failed, she resigned herself to waiting until May published her book before she would see her daughter alive again. Luckily for Martha, this was all perfectly acceptable to May, who visited Willa's body later that evening and instructed Willem and Martha Rose that Willa was greatly needed in the new world and that the angels Gabriel and Michael had instructed her to remove her body to her own house where they could place her on ice in order to preserve her until such a time as a resurrection could be made possible. Importantly, her death had to be kept a secret from the officials, as any attempt at a post-mortem examination would render resurrection impossible. That night, Willa was wrapped in a blanket and driven to May's home, where large slabs of ice had been brought up to the bathroom in wait for Willa's body to be placed on top. May then ordered all seven of Willa's pet dogs to be killed and placed around the body, two of which were chloroformed whilst the others were likely poisoned. Realising that this was only a temporary solution, a bedroom was set up in May's house where the bodies of Willa and the dogs were eventually moved and fresh ice and flowers were delivered daily. Fortunately, all of this was made somewhat bearable to William and Martha due to the fact that the 6th of February and the impending publication of May's book was only a month away. Unfortunately, February the 6th came and went and no book materialised, nor did the world end, nor was there any great rebirth. Instead, May found herself at the sharp end of an inquiry into how and from where she had managed to gather so much wealth. All of a sudden, the LA Times journalists that were so accommodated back in the summer were no longer so welcome, especially when the Times pounced on the inquiry as the perfect reason to finally print their article. Angel Gabriel Girl quizzed. Prosecutor pens inquiry into cult publication. Leaders claim Heavenly One dictated message. Eternal life and mindful of nuggets promised. It was, ta- it was safe to say that the piece was not a particularly favourable one with an opening quote from Ruth called Balderdash and likening it to the hours the sisters spent prattling on about their beliefs. It didn't really improve either. After repeating May and Ruth's backstory, the journalist referred to May's still upcoming book as the most astounding, bewildering hodgepodge of biblical and mythological references, cross-references and statements that possibly has ever been gathered together. The inquiry did investigate the Blackburn, with both May and Ruth being taken to the police station in order to answer questions regarding their apparent wealth. The pair kept to a story that they had been left a large sum of money from May's old lover, Fremont Everett. Coincidentally, just a week after the opening of the inquiry, a rusty old box was dug up in Topanga Canyon, just northwest outside of Los Angeles, and handed into the police. The box was full of old love letters sent to May from Fremont Everett, along with paperwork detailing $100,000 in securities. When May was questioned, she said that she had buried the box many years ago in order to hide the truth from Everett's family. Freeman Everett, of course, denied everything publicly, which had the benefit of removing May from any suspicion of blackmail, and just as May had likely hoped, the police dropped the inquiry into her financial affairs. Instead, they turned their attention towards Margaret Rowan and her failed doomsday cult. Rowan insisted that she had not taken donations from her followers, despite reports finding their way to the police that she had suggested that her followers dispose of all of their worldly goods, in her direction of course, before the end of days arrived. Rowan fought a good fight and managed to keep the authorities off her back for a while, but eventually she wound up sentenced to a year in prison after she attempted to assassinate her former chief advisor 
after he had publicly exposed her as a fraud. The fact that February the 6th had come and gone and May and Ruth had still not published their promised book and had instead wound up the subject of a public inquiry was not as damaging to the order as one might have imagined. In fact, just as May had hoped, with the failure of Rowan's doomsday prophecy and all the added press interest around May and Ruth, the cult was going from strength to strength. Three months later, the order moved out of their homes in Los Angeles and into a pair of new houses in Santa Monica, which had been donated by a particularly invested follower. Willa's body was still causing certain complications, and so it was when they moved. Willa's body, along with the seven dogs, was placed inside copper-lined coffins and sealed shut, where they were then placed in a bathtub filled with ice that had been stored in a secret compartment stuffed out of sight. All of this was a complicated secret to keep up, especially with the delivery of £600 of ice coming weekly, doing nothing to help conceal the girl's body from suspicious parties. Instead, May organised, under command of the angels of course, for the roads to bury Willa in the basement of their new home in Venice. A hole was dug in the bedroom floor and a chamber was built from wood, complete with a trapdoor for easy access. Willa's body was shoddily embalmed according to an ancient recipe of herbs, spices and ointments that were rubbed into the dead girl's skin before she was interred into the basement chamber along with the dogs. If the roads had any concerns, these could easily be tempered, of course, knowing that the whole thing was only going to be a temporary solution before their daughter was to be resurrected. For May, she was most likely just happy that the dead girl was finally out of sight, and hopefully soon out of mind. By this time, the order was now juggling over a 100 members in the Los Angeles area, and May was struggling to adequately house them all. In solution to this, she began seeking land where she could set up a commune-style colony that the Order could move into as a permanent headquarters. Fortunately, the Dabneys were still on board as keen investors and William Rhodes had recently been able to sell his own business, allowing May to fall back on their money to purchase 164 acres of land in the Simi Valley, north of Los Angeles. Rural and sparsely populated, the area was the perfect place for May to keep both her and her order out of the public spotlight and plenty secluded to exercise control over the occupants. Parcels of land were handed out to followers to build houses upon. Though everyone started out in tents, they were soon the proud owners of simple wood cabins, connected by dirt roads that snaked their way through the order's new home. On the peak of a hill in the centre of the settlement, a temple was built, complete with stained glass windows and furnished with a £500 throne, intended for Jesus upon his return to earth. The design of the throne was fed to May, of course, via the angels. Christened the work of God, the new colony was only the beginning of what would eventually be a grand community, with plans drawn up for a large printing house, a debate hall, tennis courts, swimming pools and sunken gardens, all of which, of course, would never actually be realised. Still, it was nice to have a dream, and the work, as the inhabitants affectionately referred to it, was a decent enough home, with a water tank, barns full of animals, some of which were rumoured to have been used for ritual sacrifice in the Order's nocturnal ceremonies, and its rows of simple wooden cabins that were far enough away from the public where they were able to partake in their rituals as they saw fit, free from any criticism or scrutiny. All was not paradise in the Order, however. The work had unintentionally caused a division as the majority of the members moved into the colony, whilst others, perhaps less committed, stayed in Los Angeles properties, commuting out to the commune for events. There was deeper division beginning to show too, between those members 
that were drawn to the order due to its Christian science-like promises of healing and resurrection versus those that were more drawn to the convoluted metaphysical nonsense that continued to tumble from May and Ruth's mouths at every opportunity. May herself was not especially keen on the Christian science or new thought angle of the order, but she had tolerated their beliefs in order to grow the group's membership. In order to accommodate both membership groups at the work, May set up a separate order, naturally named in the most convoluted way possible as the Church of the Divine Science of Joshua, the branch, the headstone of the corner. These two groups may have had distinctly different beliefs, but they were inextricably intertwined, with a charter established that the group would teach from the works of May and Ruth and hold services in accordance with their teachings. The group was incorporated as a domestic non-profit organisation with Clifford Dabney made president. The problem for May, however, was that Dabney was becoming something of an awkward investor. By now, the oil baron had pumped a huge amount of his own money into the organisation and it was becoming more and more obvious it was not purely on financial grounds. Dabney began having strange visions which he interpreted as divine and prophetic. At one point, he said he saw a tractor run over hundreds of people walking on Broadway, killing them all where they stood, leading him to seeing himself resurrect them all with a wave of his hand. In another vision, he saw hundreds of birds turn into chickens, which led him to give May the money to purchase 600 chickens for the colony, which were to be let loose to roam free around the site. Clearly Dabney had begun to see himself as some kind of heavenly figure, telling people he had the ability to move the stars in the sky and that he could see the angels. He reportedly asked to use the divine furniture in the temple and even began asking people to call him father. Before long, he was asking May outright for her to instill upon him supernatural powers from heaven in order for him to prove to his family that he was not deluded and that his investments had been made sensibly. This placed May in an awkward position. Happy to continue taking his money, she did not wish to upset Dabney, but nor could she allow him to get carried away along this current path. For now all she could do was deny him any gifts of supernatural powers and hope that he would continue to tag along without dealing too much damage. Fortunately, time was running out for Dabney and his money, which after donating so much to May and his business interests failing, had been reduced to almost nothing. The once rich oil and real estate baron was struggling to pay his own bills and was only a stone's throw away from bankruptcy, a situation that was not ideal for May nor the order. Eventually, the humiliation of following May for so long, handing over so much money and gaining almost nothing in return, caught up with Dabney and he stepped down from the position of president and told May that he and his wife would be leaving the order. May was unimpressed with this revelation and sought to snatch anything she could, telling Dabney that the angels had commanded that he hand over the lease to a group of oil fields that he still received monthly royalty payments for, lest he wish to suffer a painful death, which the angels would be sure to bring down upon him. Lucky for Dabney, the angels hadn't actually commanded the royalty payments for themselves, so he was free to keep this money for now, but the leases themselves had to go. Reluctantly, Dabney signed over the leases. Almost immediately, however, May began demanding the royalty payments too. Apparently, the angels had changed their minds and now they wanted everything that Dabney had left. Terrified of what might happen to him, either at the hands of the angels or May's followers, Dabney handed over his royalty checks to May on the 12th of every month, leaving him with nothing. By 1927, Dabney's apparent delusions and impending bankruptcy 
were actually one of the least concerning events that were seemingly continuously occurring around the Order. Events which perhaps explained Dabney's capitulation to May's demands, despite his dire financial situation. In February, the disappearance of Louise Voles, a 29-year-old, well-known and well-liked member of the Order that lived in the work of God Colony with her husband and two sons, threatened to dig up memories of the earlier vanishing of Sammy Rizzio. On February the 3rd, Louise's husband Ernest and the two children went outside after dinner around 7.30pm to milk their cows at their home just outside of the colony in the Simi Valley. As they went about their tasks, rain began to fall heavily and so they rushed back to the house, only to find it completely empty with no sign of Louise, who had most definitely been inside when they had left less than 30 minutes earlier. Ernest wasn't immediately concerned for her whereabouts when he saw that Louise had left her purse behind, and so he thought it most likely that she'd either popped out to see a neighbour, or perhaps had even gone out for a quick evening walk, and like them, been caught in the rain. In fact, Ernest was well aware that Louise had something of a thing for walking in the rain anyway, where she apparently liked to stand out and let the rainfall hit her face as she looked up to the sky. With it being so dark, however, he decided to go outside and see if he could find her in the nearby area, but it was all to no avail. None of the neighbours had seen her either, which was somewhat worrying. The following day, when she'd still not returned, Ernest enlisted the help of some of the nearby community, but no trace of his wife was found all day. Finally, he contacted the police, and an official search was organised, which lasted several days, but still nothing was found. Louise had always seemed like a happy woman who had no real issues with her position in life nor her family, yet here it seemed she had completely vanished and no one seemed to have any inkling as to how or why it may have happened. Eventually a thousand dollar reward was offered for information, but the money went entirely unclaimed. The only hint of any information that was ever really uncovered was from Vols's 11-year-old son, Ernest Jr., who much later recollected that he had seen a woman being pulled into a large black car. Whose car it was, he was unsure. He wasn't even entirely sure that the woman being pulled into the car had been his mother. No evidence was ever found at the scene of any car or abduction, but it's curious that at the time, May Blackburn just so happened to have a large black Lincoln, just like Ernest Jr. described, and that the Volzers lived very close to the colony. Whilst Louise Volz's disappearance caused little more than a rumour at the time, a different event caused much more of a stir around the work. Merritt Woodall, a young member of the Order, whose parents were both part of the Order, was working for May as a chauffeur when May approached him one evening and explained to him that the angel Gabriel had ordered that he must be shot. When he protested, May told him that it was simply God's will and that it wasn't their place to question why. The young driver was then commanded to go get the car so that he could chauffeur May to a nearby drugstore to pick up some bandages that they could use to wrap his imminent gunshot wound. Once they arrived back in the valley, he was marched into a clearing, where Ruth met them with a pistol and shot him in the foot from just feet away. He was then bandaged up and told never to tell anyone of the ordeal, nor what it meant spiritually, though that was anyone's guess anyway. May fed him a story to tell, should anyone ask, that he shot himself in the foot whilst cleaning a gun, and just for good measure, she had him followed from that point on, just to make sure that he kept in line. For what reason this bizarre ritual was ever carried out was a complete mystery, but Woodall harboured a deep resentment towards May from that point on. Margaret Sands, or the sandbar between the water and the land, as she was known in the order, 
had a good reason to take an interest in May's promised future. Her sister, Frances Turner, was badly paralysed, requiring full-time care. She was unable to speak and lived in constant pain while suffering from frequent choking fits. Frances had joined the order, naturally inspired by the promises of healing that the doctors had been unable to offer. But in March of 1928, she met a very different fate. Most members knew that something strange was occurring when the colony was ordered to be evacuated by May. It turned out that Frances was to be the centre of a healing ritual that entailed a five-foot-wide brick platform that she would be suspended over, laying on a sheet of chicken wire whilst the bricks beneath her were heated to oven temperatures. It's not entirely clear how any of this was supposed to heal Frances, but whatever the plan, it clearly failed, as after two days, Frances passed away. Her doctor was called to the colony and a death certificate was issued, though not until five days later, with the cause of death officially signed off as leakage of the heart, despite the fact that no official examination was ever carried out. When the temporarily evicted members returned days later, they were told simply that Frances had been miraculously cured and had left the camp on her own two feet. This explanation didn't stop the rumours swirling, however, and some members who were privy to the healing ritual had a very different tale to tell. They claimed that the bricks were heated to such a temperature that Frances was essentially cooked in a makeshift oven, with her death providing relief within an hour. Not unsurprisingly, the locals of the Simi Valley began speaking in hushed tones about their new neighbours, who had been busy building their colony. Stories like this, like the disappearance of Louise Voles and the deaths of colony members, the sound of random gunshots and whispers that the group were holding bizarre nighttime rituals that included animal sacrifice and naked dancing, weren't really doing anything to warm the locals up to their presence. Consequently, May offered up a series of interviews to the local newspapers with the angel Gabriel commanding the order in which the interviews would take place. Unsurprisingly, the first newspaper chosen wrote about May's little club in the hills with a resounding positive slant, noting that the great book, which had still not been released, bear in mind, was finally completed and only being held back by the group's lack of printing facilities in the valley. This was all a minor problem and planned to be fixed soon once such a building could be constructed. The book, the journalist wrote, was the greatest work that has ever been sent to the world. It did not sound like much of a surprise that Gabriel picked this journalist as the first to interview May. The second paper to interview May was somewhat less positive. Though it still referred to the order as a club rather than a cult or sect, it did give an attempt to an overview of May's teachings. But attempting to condense such a grand theory into a few paragraphs only appeared to make the whole thing sound even more detached from reality than ever. Either way, With the two interviews out of the way, the order had been displayed to the locals as little more than a small club of harmless intellectuals discussing metaphysics in the hills, which was perfectly fine as far as May was concerned. By late 1928, the order was starting to finally unravel, however. Clifford Dabney, one-time rich investor and a huge proponent of May's word, was now a penniless dropout, whilst a schism in the membership had seen a split tear the group in half and May's great publication was still not finished. The unsavoury rumours that had been going around about the order in public were doing nothing to help its reputation, and finally, all the enemies that May had made were finally beginning to find their voices. 
Clifford Dabney, for one, had been offered $75,000 to bring down May's order by an unnamed, disgruntled California man, and Dabney was apparently desperate enough to cash in on this offer. Fortunately, he found an accomplice in Merritt Woodall, who had never quite forgiven May and Ruth for shooting him in the foot. Even the Rhodes family, William and Martha, had grown weary of waiting for their daughter's long-promised resurrection. Several members had drifted away and many of them had gifted money to the order for the publication of a book that was just simply never published and now they were demanding their money back on the way out. Other members were staying at the colony only because they feared for their well-being should they voice their concerns or their wishes to leave. In efforts to reconcile the discord within this group, May gathered the order and embellished them with a new challenge. The angels had apparently handed down an order that May, along with nine other members and two mules, were to make a 500-mile pilgrimage across the Mojave Desert in order to carry out a ritual at Stovepipe Wells in Death Valley. The whole event was supposed to represent the biblical story of David defeating Goliath. Naturally, the members would not be walking the journey, instead choosing to drive in two vehicles, which did somewhat diminish the impact of the trek, but May was never one to sweat the details. It seems somewhat unlikely, too, that despite May's best efforts, the pilgrimage would have done anything to temper the disharmony growing throughout the colony. In the summer of 1929, Clifford Dabney and his wife finally withdrew officially from the order. Disillusioned after dumping all of his money into the operation, only to receive nothing in return and see no hint of May's promised miracles, he finally found the courage to stop throwing good money after bad. Not that he had any money left to throw in the first place. Almost immediately after leaving, he commenced legal action against May in the form of five civil suits, seeking to claim back over $21,000 in unpaid loans, along with a great deal of Los Angeles real estate, the 164 acres of land the work was built upon, and the oil lease whose royalties May had been cashing monthly. Following the official complaints, he then went to the police, seeking to press fraud charges against May directly. Unfortunately for Dabney, his story sounded not only completely insane to the patient police officers who listened to him explain, but since he turned over all of his money with clear consent and was not mentally impaired at the time, there was very little that the police could do, though they did grant him a meeting at the district attorney's office where he could once more explain his story in order to see if any crime had been committed. Dabney took his wife to the meeting, along with two other former members of the order, in the hopes their own testimonies would help bolster his case against May. Over the following week, the Deputy District Attorney, Charles Kearney, led a small-scale investigation, interviewing as many members of the order as they could. But at the end of everything, they only found a generally uncooperative group of people who seemed satisfied on the whole with their religious choices and the method in which they worshipped. This was until an anonymous call came into the police, tipping them off by telling them to look into the death of Francis Turner, the paralysed member of the order who had been cooked to death during one of May's healing rituals. Initially, nothing came of the tip-off. Police Captain Thomason found that the woman had indeed died, but all paperwork seemed to have been in order and nothing seemed suspicious. Things did seem off, though. He had to at least admit that. Thomason opted to leak a story to the press, hoping that a small amount of publicity might elicit further tip-offs, or at least prompt members to step up and set the story straight. The piece appeared in the LA Times on the 4th of October under the headline, Cult Leaders Face Charges. Mayotis Blackburn and her daughter, Ruth Anglin Wheeland, asserted to be leaders of a mysterious religious sect called the Divine Order of the Royal Arms of the Great Eleven, 
are charged with 15 counts of ground theft in a complaint issued yesterday by Deputy District Attorney Kearney. With the issuance of the complaint, Kearney revealed a strange story of secret religious rites performed on an isolated hilltop near Santa Susana, of large sums of money asserted to have been extracted from the worshippers under promises of divine revelations that would place all the undiscovered wealth in the world in the hands of the followers, and of the disappearance of several persons who once were members of the sect. Clifford Dabney was named as the principal complaining witness in the piece, and the police were said to be gearing up to visit the colony in order to search the members' cabins for evidence. The move from Thomason paid dividends almost immediately when a second anonymous call came into the police, this time telling them to keep a lookout for the body of Willa Rhodes, who had died four years earlier and whose body had been hidden by the members. Thomason visited the Rhodes at their home immediately and after being invited in by Martha Rhodes, questioned her and her husband on the death of their daughter. William confirmed to the police that Willow was indeed dead, but he refused to offer up any information regarding the location of the daughter's burial. Eventually, after two hours of careful questioning, Martha submitted and told the policeman everything concerning her daughter and her strange burial beneath the floorboards of the very house that they were all sat in, including the fact that she was buried with her seven dogs, all of which were killed in order to assist in her daughter's eventual resurrection ritual. Martha insisted that Willa had died a natural death, but the police insisted that due to the circumstances, Willa's body would have to be inspected. The homicide team was called in, and officers Frank Gundaffer, Geoffrey Hickey and Edgar Edwards arrived shortly after in order to exhume Willa from the makeshift basement. Once the coffins were eventually hauled up into the room above, they were found to be half full of water that had managed to seep in through the cracks in the coffin seals. Despite this, they found Willa inside and, remarkably, Martha's ancient embalming solution had seemed to have done the trick, as her body remained almost perfectly preserved. Unfortunately for all involved, the bodies of the dogs had had no efforts made to preserve them at all, and their corpses had rotted into a putrid mess, loosely wrapped in seven individual white blankets. Willa's body was carted away to the coroner's office, whilst Martha and William's roads were taken into police custody. The piece that appeared in the Los Angeles Times that Sunday morning was as sensationalist as the story deserved with May and Ruth named as the high priestesses of a strange cult, whilst also detailing the disappearance of Francis Turner, along with the description of the strange healing ritual that had supposedly taken place at the work. Realising that everything was quickly unravelling for the order, May and Ruth submitted themselves to the police via their attorney, Thomas Wade Cochran, who insisted that his clients refuted the charges made against them. He obviously had his own doubts, however, given the fact that he then promptly hired a private detective in order to look into May and Ruth's order, hoping to head off any nasty surprises he may uncover later down the track whilst representing the two strange women. Once the initial hearing had been rushed through, bail was set at $10,000 for both May and Ruth, who were then transported to the county jail. The story was a nightmare for May and Ruth, who now suffered greatly in the public's eye when several of the people that they had fallen out with over the years crawled from the woodwork to unleash their stories of both women to a feverishly excited press who were, without a doubt, making the most of the bizarre story. Clifford Dabney was suffering too. Following May and Ruth's arrest, he had been inundated by death threats delivered to his home from infuriated members of the order who had seen his name mentioned in the newspapers as a principal complaint witness. He quickly called through to the police and requested protection, which was granted. Meanwhile, the investigation was only getting stranger and stranger. When William Rhodes had escorted police to the Los Angeles headquarters in order for them to interview members there concerning the death of Willa, 
Many feigned surprise that the girl was dead at all, telling the police that they had believed her to have gone east in order to pursue higher education, whilst others thought she had got married and left to live with her new family. At the same time, as the police continued their investigation into the death of Willa, Sammy Rizzio's family hopped on the bandwagon, turning up at the police station and asking the officers to begin investigating the disappearance of Sammy. Until now, Sammy's father's earlier run-ins with the police that had led the family to flee to California in the first place had deterred Francis Rizzio from approaching the officials concerning her son's disappearance. But earlier in 1927, Sammy's father had been shot in Chicago, so it was no longer much of an issue. The police approached May and Ruth, questioned them on Sammy, who both kept to the same story, that Sammy had been a violent husband and after hitting Ruth during an argument, had stormed off and never been heard from again by either woman. May presented the police with the letter, supposedly written by Sammy before his leaving, in which he admitted to being an abusive husband and bid Ruth farewell. The police showed the letter to Sammy's younger brother, Frank, who by now had told the police all about his undercover operation as May's chauffeur, but Frank said he could not be sure about the authenticity of the letter. Later that day, the police were granted a search warrant and made their way to the work, where they arranged a guided tour with Merritt Woodall, who proudly showed them all around the temple and stables and had no qualms telling police that the two fresh dirt mounds in the hillside were where the two mules had been killed and buried after their return from the Mojave Desert trek. The whole time the detectives were looking around the grounds of the colony, they were flanked with excited journalists and cameramen, who would sporadically blurt out questions, all of which Woodall was happy to answer. When asked if any of the horses in the stables were to be killed in ritual sacrifice, he simply shrugged his shoulders and replied that he wasn't sure. This question wasn't plucked from nowhere. Recently, a whole host of dog bones had been discovered within the colony and it had become clear that the order had been practising animal sacrifice for some time and not only following the death of Willa. By October the 16th, however, the police had not managed to uncover much in the way of clues and Ruth, along with the roads, were released from police custody following an examination of Willa's body where no signs of poison had been discovered despite the fact that all of her internal organs had rotted away. The young girl had most likely died from septic pharyngitis, followed by the ulceration of her tooth, claimed the doctor. Meanwhile, Sammy's letter was submitted to a handwriting specialist who confirmed that the letter was written by a right-handed individual. The problem with this analysis was the fact that Sammy's family confirmed Sammy to have been left-handed. But for every step forward in the investigation, things seemed to take two steps backwards nothing was helped by the constant stream of bizarre stories that were now clogging the pages of the press, who were having a field day with such a peculiar story. Then, just as things were seemingly more complicated than ever, another anonymous call came into place with another name for them to investigate. The caller told the officials that he had been aware that a 19-year-old girl named Jane Norris had been taken to meet May, and shortly after, she had disappeared without trace. This was just another name for the police to add to their ever-growing list of missing people who seemed to be related to the order. Two weeks later, on the 30th of October, May was finally released from police custody on $10,000 bail. A press release handed out upon her release stated that May would use her freedom to finalise the publication of The Sixth Seal, her elusive and long, long-awaited book, which she was sure would clear up any issues and bolster her defence. Her freedom was not to last though, and on December the 4th, she was arraigned on charges of grand theft that accounted to $28,000, with Clifford Dabney's attorney 
demanding that May produce her book to the court in order they could examine it to ascertain whether or not it really was dictated by an angel. Unsurprisingly, May was unable to produce any work, almost six years after it had been originally due for release. Time, it seems, was finally running out for May Blackburn. May's criminal trial opened on January the 4th, 1930, and it ran for a full seven weeks. May's defence mostly rested on the testimonies of members of the order who were still friendly to their great queen, of which, remarkably, there were still around 40 who had not abandoned the order. The witnesses wasted no time in making Dabney look like a crazed believer who had swallowed everything that May had fed him, and then some. Stories of him carrying a sword around the work with which he used to swat away negative oscillations whilst demanding other members call him father were endless, and these all certainly made Dabney's case that he was defrauded of all of his cash very hard to support with a straight face. On the other side of the fence, the prosecution sought to show that May was not running a church in any traditional sense of the word, and was instead running nothing more than a racket with no other goal than financial gain. As for May's avid followers who had given testimony, they were accused of being simply delusional. When it came time for Ruth and May to take the stand, both claimed to still be taking orders from angels, with May seemingly attempting to mount a defence that was remarkably close to passing the buck onto the divine being's shoulders. She was, after all this time, simply taking orders. Sentencing came down on the 2nd of March 1930. After a long, drawn-out trial that had been roundly ridiculed in the press, May was convicted on eight counts of ground theft and sentenced to county jail to await appeal where she was facing a prison sentence of well over a 100 years at its worst. She was also commanded to pay back $30,000 to Clifford Dabney. May told reporters following the trial that she was not guilty, but having still failed to produce her long-promised book for the trial, she told the press that if she must go to prison, she would carry on my work just the same. This is God's true work, she said, and I cannot fail. I will continue to take down the dictation of the angels. With their leader in prison, the cult members, who still clung on to their beliefs, were ordered to leave the colony, which sat abandoned in a strange sort of legal limbo. The Lord's furniture set, that May had had painstakingly constructed at huge cost, was now long since removed from the temple and was auctioned off and never seen from again. Naturally, May appealed her court decision and on the 30th of November 1930, the judges issued their conclusions. Much of the evidence concerning missing persons was not related to the defrauding of Clifford Dabney and had served only to prejudice the jury against May, they said. Furthermore, the court ruled that Dabney was no fool. He had followed May gladly as a zealous devotee, and whilst May's beliefs were certainly wacky, any encroachment upon them by the courts would have set a dangerous precedent concerning religious freedom. If rational minds wanted to follow a gaggle of nonsensical garbage, they were entitled to do so by the Constitution. Finally, it was ruled that all charges were to be reversed. May Blackburn was released as a free woman. Following the trial of May, no other grievances were ever brought to trial concerning the order. All instances of missing persons had led nowhere. Evidence lacked and inconsistencies in testimony only took the police so far. Whilst in custody, May was interviewed by Dr Lewis Brown, a London-born immigrant to America who had forged a career as a lecturer and author in popular history, particularly regarding the propagation of religious beliefs. After a prolonged interview with May, he concluded that she was 
a woman of limited education and intelligence, but with an enormous amount of shrewdness. She certainly believes now, and probably believed in the beginning, the things that she teaches. Mrs Blackburn herself possibly may not be exactly what is known as psychopathic, but she is characteristically a hysterical type. Despite its catastrophic and highly public implosion throughout 1929, the order did continue after May's trial, though never at the strength it had once been. Ruth filed for official divorce from the still-missing Sammy Rizzio in 1932 and remarried a barber named Connie Gray. Both William and Martha Rose continued to associate with the order, perhaps still hoping that someday May might release her book and that their daughter might finally be resurrected. It was a hope that they clung to until their eventual deaths one week apart in 1944, four years after Ruth had submitted documents to the state of California to formally dissolve the order. May died of heart failure on June 17, 1951, in Los Angeles. Her magnum opus, The Great Six Seal, remained unpublished right to the end. So that was the story of the divine order of the royal arms of the great 11. And there's quite a bit to talk about. Like, despite that being quite a long episode, there's quite a bit to talk about after these short advert breaks. Forbidden history, grisly ghosts, monstrous cryptids, and harrowing folklore dominate Japan's history and culture. Mysterious Japan is a bi-weekly podcast presenting these spine-chilling horror stories, urban legends, and unbelievable histories in a campfire story format. Many of these tales have never been presented in English before. Our journey takes place where dark history and supernatural folklore collide. Mysterious Japan is produced, written and translated by recognized Japan expert, Dr. Heath Avey. Season one relates the unbelievable legends and ghost stories from the so-called suicide forest. Listen to Mysterious Japan for free on Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Learn more at our website at themysteriousjapan.com and be transported by unbelievable stories where the lines between reality and folklore become blurred in the shadowlands of Japan. Once again, that's themysteriousjapan.com. Welcome back. So yes, that is quite a story. And like I say at the start, when I first started reading about this, I, I just read like a brief overview and I was like, and I, I genuinely felt to myself that this this can't be real. So I started looking up some of the newspaper articles and things like that. And it still took me a little while. I still had to see a lot of sources before I realised that, no, this is, this is all true. This happened and it isn't fiction. I have to admit, cults are difficult for me. I, I sh- really struggle. You know, with dark issues I've dealt with, I've dealt with a lot of very bad people. Um, you know, or written about a lot of very bad people. But it is cult leaders that really get under my skin. But to see these people just manipulate people so, so, so gladly. And, and at the end, uh, May was um, seen to by a doctor who said that he believed that she genuinely believed her thing, her, her, her beliefs. I, I don't buy it. I don't think she ever genuinely believed them. I think she. I think she may have come to believe them. I think, you know, once you start surrounding yourself with enough people who who nod their heads and say, yes, you smart, you start enjoying the smell of your own farts. Right. Uh, and I think that's, that's what, ra- that's what these cult leaders do. That, that they, they're so manipulative. And I just, 
I just can't deal with people like that. I just, I really hate May Blackburn <laughs> and I really hate every cult leader that we've talked about on Dark Histories. I, I just can't, I just can't deal with them. Anyway, that's my personal sort of feelings about it. You, you might have noticed in the episode I, that I couldn't sort of help. I tried to sort of rein in some of my own kind of hatred <laughs> towards her nonsense, but I, I kind of couldn't rein it all in. But anyway, interestingly, the the, the missing people element of the story is probably the most interesting um, and the probably the most worth talking about. The animal sacrifice is quite interesting. Um, they definitely seem to do it. Uh, they killed a horse at one point, at least one horse, possibly more. May had this weird idea where, where she would come up with these strange rituals and she would say, you know, the, 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 the angels have commanded me that we've got to do this ritual. And it would always be something utterly bizarre. Like they bought a truck and they just left it there. And apparently leaving this truck on the hillside was part of a ritual and so she had all she called them concords and and to be honest her philosophies were completely moronic and really really complicated because they all over she she used like the same word like so concord she used the word concord for a, a lot of different things but essentially she used it to mean ritual and she would come up with all these bizarre rituals one ritual was supposedly to like hang this horse upside down and it, it basically died and they, they definitely killed the donkeys after their trek across the Mojave Desert, which was a, another concord or ritual. Um, and they, they definitely killed these dogs and they found like a whole bunch of other dog bones and stuff. So they were definitely sacrificed animals. You know, that side of it, pretty dark, pretty interesting, I guess. There was a lot of rumours about their rituals, though, and, and it's hard to separate fact from fiction there because a lot of the locals would say that they were having these like orgiastic, orgiast, orgiastic, orgiastic, orgies basically. Um, and, and I don't necessarily think there is actually much evidence for that. Everyone denied that. Um, so their rituals do become quite blurry. What is also blurry, but far more interesting, I think is the disappeared people. Now I've read Sammy's letter um, that he apparently left behind and I don't believe he wrote it for a second. It's really uh, transparent. It's it's really um, like, oh, yes, I beat up Ruth and now I'm going to leave for my sins kind of thing. And I, I just, I don't know. Like, I don't doubt that he was an, an aggressive husband. It seems that there was a lot of that around at that time. Um, but I don't think he suddenly saw the light and decided to just leave. That's That idea is just bonkers. And so there's a really interesting part of the Sammy disappearance in that um, Ruth was seen so no May rather sorry was seen um, apparently she had this large box right this large chest and uh, it was she was keeping it I think to put a horse's body in and but it was too small so she ended up using it instead she said um, she caught someone crocheting like a blanket like a crazy quill. And she said that this was like a, some kind of sin, right? So she took it away and she said that she put the quill in the box and that then she then gave the box to someone to take to somewhere called Bear Lake and bury. And that was the last that was ever seen in this box. Now, when the police said, all right, let's go dig up this box and see what's inside it because we need to check. 
They couldn't find it. And after three days, they gave up. And that was the end of that box. So what was really in that box? Now, there's a the obvious inference is that it was Sammy. Um, and, and I don't think that's too far off. They clearly did kill Francis, uh, the the paraplegic who was in a part of a healing ceremony who they basically boiled. Uh, although I don't think they sort of meant to kill her. There are some people that say that that was like a sacrifice. I think it was more like negligence. I think they just, uh, just, just messed it up, basically. But then there was another murder. And, and this is another interesting one. Um, so there was a, a murder around about the time that this happened. And it was in a chicken coop in the middle of nowhere. And some hunters found a, a body that was really gory. The scene was like really gory. It could have made an entire Dark Issues episode by itself, this murder. It was, um, you know, quite something. Um, when the police just like looked into the body, they found that it had been killed. First of all, they found it had been killed elsewhere and then it had been taken there and had its, had its blood drained and taken there. And they found that it had uh, like angular cuts into it so that it had all these like basically ritualistic shapes cut into the skin. And then its heart had been cut out and removed and things like this, right? And so they first of all, they, they thought it was like a ritualistic murder, but nothing really came of it. Then they started looking into it and they found that actually his chest cavity where the heart had been removed had been stuffed with dynamite and had been blown up. And, and, it, and it was done in an attempt to uh, disguise who the body was. And, and obviously it worked. No one ever found out who the body was. Now, a lot of people that link that to the cult, to May's order, it's never confirmed and the, the murder went nowhere. Um, the murder investigation went nowhere. No one ever found out who it was. But obviously the inference there is, again, that that was possibly Sammy or an, another one of these members that disappeared. Um, I think the um, Louise Vole's disappearance is fascinating. Uh, I think that's definitely something to do with the order, probably. I, I say definitely and then I say probably. doesn't really make sense. I don't really know. But it is interesting. She was quite a strange woman, Um I mean, a lot of these people were had pretty kooky beliefs, but, you know, they believe what they want to believe. Now, she seemed to have some interest in going outside in the rain. And um, apparently it was enough that they actually said that it was like a, um, a syndrome, like a, a rain syndrome or something. She basically would like go out whenever it rained to go and stand in it. I guess she just liked the feeling of the rain on her face or whatever. And it was raining that night. So she might have walked off and, you know, someone might have picked her up and abducted her. But it's who picked her up and abducted her. The fact that she was picked up in a big black car that was just like Maze Lincoln is quite interesting. I wouldn't have thought there was that many big black cars driving around the hills, like rural hillsides, um, on a on a 7.30 p.m. at night, um, on a weeknight. Um, but that's just me. Um, maybe that's why she was abducted. Maybe it's because there wasn't many people riding driving around and someone was there you know, opportunistic stalker was there to get her. I don't know. But um, I think there was probably something to do with the order. I think almost all of this was something to do with the order. I suppose Willa's death is interesting. I think Willa probably did die through natural causes, but I think you can also probably pin... I, I, I don't know if you... I don't know how the law works, but if that they basically shunned... Um, traditional medicine, I, I, I guess that's not a crime, is it? I don't know. Um, 
except for the fact that she was only 15. Um, that would, to me, suggest it was a crime because her parents sort of made the decision for her to shun traditional medicine. Anyway, she she died. I do think she did die traditionally. I don't think she was poisoned. And I don't think she was... Uh, it was it was part of a ritual. I think what later happened with her body was definitely part of rituals where they sort of badly embalmed her and then buried her with dogs and stuff like that and kept her on ice for ages. That was that was obviously all part of rituals. But I don't think... Her, I think her death was a, a, originally a, a, a natural thing. Um so I don't think they murdered Willa, but I do think, obviously, afterwards, all that stuff was pretty out there. When it comes to Clifford Dabney, I think he realised too late that he'd uh, been a bit of an idiot, I think. Um, but but for as far as I can see, I, I do believe that he was all in on it. He he definitely believed it all. And, and I think afterwards, you know, him coming out and saying, oh, you know, I gave my money away and, and now I want it back. That's a tough one, isn't it? Because... I mean, I would say, yeah, he probably deserves to have his money back. But at the same time, he he will willfully gave it away um, because I think he genuinely did believe it. Um, it's tough, I think, that ruling. I can see why they struggled with it in the courts, especially because of freedom of religion and, and things like that. Because on one hand, you're saying, OK, like, you know, if he genuinely believed it, these people are free to worship how they one and, and religious freedom is a, is an important thing, uh, you know, and, and all the time he's in he's uh, you know of sound mind, then he's there is nothing wrong here. On the other hand, you've surely got to look at this at some point and think of sound mind. Where do we draw that line? The man was walking around, you know, swishing a sword to get do away with negative oscillations and you know, saying that he was basically a messiah figure. Uh, at some point there, you've got to say, oh, I'm not sure this guy is particularly sound mind. He certainly shouldn't be handling hundreds or tens of thousands of dollars, which, you know, now is worth millions. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. That's a tough court ruling. But outside of ripping off a bunch of gullible rich people, you know, maybe, you know, did May really do anything wrong? Yes, I think she did. Like I say, I, I think these people are nasty pieces of work. Even the fact that, you know, if all she ever did was take rich people's money away from them, I still don't think that's a good thing. Um, but I think she also, when you look at like the Rhodeses, for example, William and Martha Rhodes, you know, thinking, basically stringing them along for ages. They, they thought their daughter was going to be resurrected. You've got to question the soundness of mind for those people as well. But grief does strange things to people and you know they were basically living above their daughter's body which it's it's a horrible situation to have to suffer through yeah and it's all it all comes down to you know these people like may who i don't know manipulate these people emotionally and it's just horrible um so yeah i don't know what i'm saying you know i guess i'm trying to get at you know it did may really do something bad. Should she have gone to prison? Yeah, I think she should have gone to prison. I think she was an evil woman. I think all of these people who start these cults and they do it purely to manipulate, uh, you know, um, vulnerable people is they're all sick in the head. So yes, that's my opinion anyway. Uh, interesting story though. Absolutely bonkers. Really bonkers. It's there's enough. There's enough plot twists and. It's bizarre happenings that it it, it it makes for a fascinating story. So yeah, I hope you enjoyed it. That was episode one of season eight, back with a bang. 
next episode, as long as I stick to the task at hand, it's going to be about a, a fairly interesting, um, I guess, cryptozoology episode, but not quite. It's this, like most Dark Histories episodes, there's a bit more to it than that. So anyway, look forward to that. That's going to be on the 21st. So just under two weeks from now. Thank you very much for listening. If you would like to contact me and talk to me about this episode or any other episode or talk to me about anything, you can do so. My email is contact at darkhistories.com. The link to that is in the show notes, as is the link to everything else, um, including the website darkhistories.com, which is where you'll find um, mostly everything. It's show notes or darkhistories.com. You'll find everything, including ways to support the show, which if you would like to do, I do have a patron, like I mentioned at the start of the show, if you would like to support on that, that's great. Uh, There are many other ways that you can support, though, without having to get involved financially, Um, you know, just sharing the show with your friends, leaving a review, things like that. It's all quality and it all helps me out a great deal because I, uh, if you are new to the show, you might not know, I make this this podcast entirely by myself. I do all the research, all the writing, all the everything. Everything is done by me. Um, And so... A lot of stuff I just don't have the time for, like promotion and social media and stuff like that. I just I just can't um, do it all. So, uh, you know, having listeners that, you know, do help share it with their friends and uh, uh, leave reviews and things like that is a massive help. So, yes, if you would like to do that, that are, I guess what I'm saying is there are those ways that you can support as well. Anyway, I'll stop banging on about all of that uh from now on for the rest of the season we'll we'll be talking less about my patron and more about kooky history so yeah thank you very much for listening i hope you enjoyed it it's been great to be back possibly i've waffled on a little bit too much this is what happens when you keep me off the microphone for a few weeks perhaps i shouldn't take breaks anyway uh thank you very much for listening i will be back in a couple of weeks until then take care and sleep tight